Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. This is Joe DeBose again, and once again, I am joined by former powerboat racing champion and current trauma icon, <laughs> editor of, the, of our textbook journal, Trauma, David Feliciano. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Feliciano. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Well, I'm going to challenge you today. I'm going to put you in a bit of the hot seat because I have some very challenging, I think, and complicated vascular injuries. You always seem to make things so simplistic and well thought out, and I'd really like to run some of these past you if you have, a, if you have time. Sure. So let's start with one that worries me. It's, a, it's an acute injury to the abdomen. You've just performed an emergent laparotomy on this patient who had a gunshot wound and hypotension. And lo and behold, you discover these combined injuries of a right devastating colon injury, kind of really just torn up right colon with frank gross contamination in the abdomen and a right common iliac artery transection. So let's play the scenario that you've, you, you've gotten the patient, he he's, remains fairly unstable, but you've now got control of the hemorrhage, you got clamps on the proximal and distal iliac, you've figured out how to keep the succus from pouring into the wound through the devastating colon injury, but he's acidotic, he's cold, he's coagulopathic. Um, how would you, what are your next thoughts when you encounter this? It's a classic damage control situation. So you do as minimal as possible with the uh, colon wound, a short of resection if you could, and then put a shunt in the uh, iliac artery system. The, the common or external iliac should never be ligated because even if you come back in six or 12 or 18 hours, people rapidly get a lot of necrosis and you're gonna lose a lot of limbs. So counting the superior mesenteric and the two iliacs I mentioned, those are the three arteries in the belly. You should never, ever resect or ligate, excuse me. Okay, what kind of, uh, what? walk me through what your, your shunt go-to's, your choice of shunt, the techniques and tips for the technique that you utilize and your thought process. Yeah, most shunts uh, that go in the iliacs and peripheral vessels are, somewhere between 10 and 16 in the big published series from Grady uh, they were pretty much 12 to 14 French in the iliacs and femorals and maybe 10 to 12 in the popliteal biggest shunt on the market now is actually a barge shunt which is up to 16 French but basically you just pick the largest size that will fit into the vessel uh, this is a classic indication in most series now, about 45 to 65% of patients who get a vascular shunt is for damage control. Vast majority of the others are for the Gustillo grade three open fractures in the extremity where you have an unstable bone, a lot of contamination and an arterial injury. Uh, basically, I just pick the biggest shunt that I can, and that's often after dilating the two ends of the vessel if I've resected uh, an area that's injured. And then, basically, you should cut the length of the shunt about four centimeters longer than the gap between the two ends. And you always put a tie around the middle of your tailored shunt so you know where the middle is put a hemostat on the middle of the shunt so you don't have a face full of blood when you put the shunt in the proximal end of the artery. And finally, you just usually 
push the shunt approximately for about a centimeter and a half, tie the artery down on the shunt with a 2-0 silk, release the hemostat so you can see if there's pulsatile flow, put the hemostat back on, and then go ahead and put the distal end of the arterial shunt in. It's very, very straightforward. I think the mistakes people make are picking shunts that are way too small because the artery's in spasm, not putting it in far enough so that it pops out when orthopedics, for example, is manipulating an extremity. But if you put it in for a centimeter and a half or so and really tie down tight, these things don't pop out with even the most vigorous orthopedic manipulation. Yeah, I, I a question for you here. I know some of these shunts that you're talking about are not readily found in the trauma room, and sometimes at 2 a.m. the OR tech may not be know where to find them in the vascular room down the hall. Any role for improvised shunts? I mean, you emphasize the largest piece of uh, shunt that would fit. What about the largest small chest tubes, pediatric chest tubes, those kind of things? Have you ever used that? Sure. Yeah, you can actually use IV tubing. I mean, the, the disadvantage is that the shunts have round, sort of rounded, tapered ends. Not really tapered, they're just sort of smooth and rounded. And when you jam the shunt into the proximal end of the artery, it's nice to have that sort of tapered or rounded end again so you don't lift up the enema. But you can use uh, small argyle chest tubes, you can use IV tubing. In the children, you can use either a number five or a number eight French feeding tube. So there are all sorts of things you can use. There, there are no clear-cut data on any of these shunts having a better patency. And frankly, patency is quite good with all of them if it's reasonably sized. So now this patient may be a bad example because I kind of gave you a scenario where he's already frankly coagulopathic, but I can think of offhand a few scenarios where you might need to put shunts in for reasons in patients that are not quite so frankly down the deadly triad. They may have other priorities that you need to focus on. Um, what about, what's your thought on anticoagulation for shunts, like in the extremities or other locations? Do you ever employ systemic heparinization for these patients? There are no prospective data on the value of added anticoagulation. In most of these patients, particularly the damage control group, some of them, or most of them, can be coagulopathic right after surgery, and no one would give anticoagulation then. In the patients with the open fractures and the mangled extremities, nobody would give uh, anticoagulation then. So I think your goal is really to absolutely put in the biggest possible shunt you can. They're usually not that long unless you're going to do a, you know, a replant of a hand or forearm or something. And the patency rate in the Grady series overall was 95%. And patients in the unit, it, it dropped to 91%. But basically, most people have found that if you have a short run with a shunt to get the patient over their hypothermia and acidosis, and it's a good size shunt in the artery, and you have not ligated the main venous outflow from the extremity. Surprisingly, they stay open, but again, it's never been studied prospectively. Okay. Well, how long can I leave that shunt in? Does it depend on the location I'm using it in? What variables are to consider here? Yeah, it's very interesting. In the multi-center uh, series that Kenji Inaba uh, wrote up a couple years ago, mm-hmm. The times, uh, the so-called dwell times, were relatively short. 
and you want to divide the groups who have shunts into two groups. One, the shunt comes in and out at the very first operation, as might happen with a bad open fracture of an extremity. And then there's the people with longer dwell times who actually need damage control and will come back for a second operation. In the American literature, there is one patient, I was the surgeon, who had a 10-day run with an argyle shunt in the right axillary artery. And if you look in the online journal TASCO this month, that case is written up as a vascular case of the month. You have to give us a little background on that scenario. That's fascinating. Uh, near cardiac arrest from exsanguination in the emergency room, on the verge of heart stoppage, thoracotomy, cross-clamp aorta, run to OR, clear-cut and damage control indicated, axillary vein ligated, shunt in axillary artery, very sick post-op, basically. Oh, wow. Sounds like a great case, or hopefully it worked out well for the patient as well as it did for it the fascinating case. It did, actually. That's great. Okay, so let's now let's say we've got this patient who was in the deadly triad. We took him to the ICU. We did a great job resuscitating him. Now we're back in the OR, and you've got these stapled ends of a colon that you did for control. You've got this shunt in the iliac artery. What leaving the the colon piece aside a little bit or, or including that into the context of how you're going to manage the colon as well but primarily focusing on the vascular what what do we do what do you choose to reconstruct here you have to make a decision and it pretty much is based on the extent of contamination at the original operation secondly is there still some residual contamination or even an odor of stool at the reoperation. What other injuries are in the abdomen? I mean, are there a bunch of other bad injuries in the pelvis, for example? And the patient's condition, uh, I personally in 42 years have had four blowouts of either end-to-end anastomoses or interposition grafts in the iliac artery after simultaneous uh, GI contamination, usually colon. So I'm a little sensitized to blowouts in this area. If I'm comfortable putting a small saphenous vein or PTFE graft in because I didn't have a lot of contamination, a word of advice, and that is mobilize as much of the greater momentum as you can and see if you can get a vascularized pedicle to actually encircle your one or two anastomoses in the graft, where you're actually doing like a spiral omental cover, <clears throat> cover excuse me, over your vascular repair. Even if everything was minimal contamination the first time, everything's clean the second time, the patient's doing better, it's a higher risk situation. So I think you ought to cover your graft. If you're uncomfortable doing the spiral, then just bring a, a pedicle down of greater momentum and tack it on either side so it's fully covered. If you really are feel you've had a ton of contamination, then you will uh, commit yourself to an extra anatomic bypass. What would be, if you are going to attempt an interposition, at least at the common iliac, it seems to me that saphenous vein 
uh, itself might be a size mismatch. And uh, you could do spiral graphs or things that a lot of people don't have much experience doing and take time. Um, is there any role to uh, utilizing local vein? In other words, taking the internal iliac vein or the external iliac vein and utilizing that as a conduit. Have you ever done that before? Or what are your thoughts on that? I haven't, but you know, we certainly recommend first looking at the size of the saphenous in the groin. If that's no good, is the injury in proximity to where you could mobilize the internal iliac on that side out of the pelvis and swing it up to replace the external iliac? And then if you're willing to take the time, you can take the femoral vein, a short segment from the non-injured side of the body which makes a terrific conduit size-wise, wall thickness-wise. And we might talk later in this about how it makes a great conduit in an infected field. But I would always go to the saphenous and the contralateral lower extremity first just to see if it's one that might dilate up. Most of these uh, interpositions in the iliac from routine civilian gunshot wounds are not long graphs. Okay. What if there are no no autographed options? Uh, what are your? I mean, there, we have some synthetic options. You've obviously written a lot about one in particular, but I mean, you can use Dacron. You can use PTFE. What What would be your go to uh, in this kind of scenario for the initial case? Well, I'd probably defer to you on some of the biologic substitutes. Uh, am I afraid of putting PTFE in a situation like this? I'm not afraid. I don't think it's ideal. And again, if I felt that was the only thing I could put in, a ringed PTFE 8mm graft, I would really cover it very, very well. Yeah, the biologics are out there, but they don't come in the wealth of sizes that we have for uh, some of the synthetics yet. So we, maybe we can do a podcast to talk about some of that with Dr. Morrison here, who knows a lot more about that. Um, so you've done your repair. You protected it as you advised. And I guess I'm asking more kind of in a general sense, vascular repairs anywhere in the body. What is the role of angiogram intraoperatively after repair? When do you get one? And, and, and what do you do with that information? I have a pretty fixed rule that if I do a complex reconstruction in a lower extremity, complex meaning a resection, and end-to-end anastomosis or resection and graft, I always do an angiogram at completion because the problems that you can have may be far down that you can't see. I've had people embolize two of the three shank arteries that I would not have known about. In the upper extremity graft or end to end, if I get booming pulses at the wrist, I do not do an angiogram. But I think in the iliac, you have to decide if you got there quickly, got a shunt in, passed a Fogarty at the reoperation and got booming pulses back. It's hard to screw up an iliac anastomosis because of the size. You get down to the femoral or the popliteal, they're a little smaller, and I tend to be very, very uh, compulsive about doing angiograms in those patients. So upper extremity, no. Lower extremity, yes. Iliac judgment call. Okay, let's make it, uh, let's get further down the complication pathway. So we get out of Dodge, we get this, we do all your protective maneuvers that you suggest. Uh, and about, oh, I don't know, seven to 10 days later, the patient develops hypotension and CTA suggests that he has an aggressive leak and an asthmatic breakdown. So we take him back to the operating room, we get that controlled. 
what now? What do we do now? We've already done used our primary here. What what are our options in the setting of now an infected field? Yeah, I I think that just from experience in many years, I think there are two. Uh, one is to uh, ligate above, ligate below, and then bring over a extra anatomic bypass from the other common femoral artery and simply tunnel it further down on, for example, if you're in the iliac, you can just bring it over the other common femoral. Um, an eight millimeter ringed PTFE in a young healthy kid will probably have a 10 year patency of 90, 95%. So I think that's one option. And then the other option, as you, we just mentioned, is to take out the actual femoral vein, the big so-called, not the profunda, but the actual femoral vein, for the reasons that I mentioned, and just put it in situ where the infection was, but make sure it's well covered, make sure they're on the appropriate antibiotics. And it is a thicker vein, as you know, uh, Pat Claggett and Jim Valentine replaced any number of abdominal aortic grafts that were infected with these so-called neo-aortas. It's a great size match for an iliac. So that's the other option, I think. Um, doing any kind of axe fem or something around the infection. I saw the recent paper on axe fem grafts unilateral having a pretty good patency but I, it's a long graph it's uncomfortable for patients they lay on it and I just think if, if you're going to do an extra anatomic a crossover fem fem is ideal yeah all, all sound strategies um, you know we've had some challenging cases and I've been in your office showing you some interesting films even since our time here together and I, I, I'm just sure you may remember a case where we had very similar to this they had uh, had an iliac artery injury uh, at that point they had mobilized up uh, to do a primary reanastomosis but it, it blew out uh, in a delayed fashion patient nearly died but um, after we shunted and then came back we debated a bit about how to fix this and of course, me being an endovascular trauma guy, um, and Dr. Morrison and I kind of proposed to everybody to do this endograft, basically take an endograft and span the gap so that you don't have a suture line at risk. Is that, is there some, at the time you, you, you helped us work through that and it ended up working out fantastic for the patient, but that's a bit of a one-off. Do you think that those kind of hybrid solutions have a role and at least as a midterm solution that you can come back and repair with something else later? I don't know, Joe. As you know, I'm not an endovascular person, and I'm not crazy about throwing synthetic materials right in a field that's been infected. So I would think under exceptional circumstances, it's something to talk about, but I would recommend, you know, just probably easier on the patient to do it in one operation and get the femoral vein from the other side, make sure it's well covered, put them on a couple of days of antibiotics, and I, my guess is you would have done just as well. But again, I can't really answer that with any experience. Okay. Well, let's step back from kind of this... Uh, you know, this whirlwind of uh, disaster complexity that I've uh, put before you and talk about some situations that may be a little less complex, but no less controversial in some ways. Um, let's say you do a PTFE repair of a left superficial femoral artery because there's no available vein conduit. Um, and I guess my question would be, how do you manage these patients? How do you monitor that patient post-op? Same as pretty much you do for elective vascular surgery. 
Uh, if you get good pulses back after in the OR and your completion arteriogram was good, I would only monitor pulses in the hospital. And then if the pulses change, do either a duplex or a CTA to see if there's either an embolic or thrombotic problem. I don't do anything special with in-hospital monitoring. You know, I'm never sure, either vascular, kind of my vascular background experience, a lot of times we do repairs, we'll get a baseline duplex before they leave the hospital. I don't know the value of that in somebody who has doesn't have signs or symptoms uh, per se, but um, I don't know, do you use duplex as a baseline very often? No, I've, I've never done it in trauma because, again, most of my lower extremity complex repairs get a completion arteriogram, so I'm satisfied technically. And if pulses are stable, I don't get a baseline. Uh, most of these are different patients than the atherosclerotic patients. They have better runoff, better enema locally. And I think if you do a good repair, monitoring pulses in-house is adequate. Um, what about uh, uh, antiplatelet medications or anticoagulation? This is a young, uh, in two different scenarios. One, the young patient you're talking about. It's got, he's 20 years old. He's got a long life ahead of him. The other, perhaps maybe and we do occasionally get those patients in their late 50s, early 60s who heavy smokers and have atherosclerotic disease and perhaps distal, compromised distal outflow. Who do you use antiplatelet medications or anticoagulation for after repairs, and what's your go-to when you do utilize that? I, I have a, a rule of three for all my post-op complex vascular repairs in the lower extremity. Again, these would be end-to-end or interposition grafts. And the rule of three is they're given written instructions, no smoking. Secondly, a daily exercise program that includes not sitting in front of the television with their knee bent, for example, or their hip bent. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, in patients without a history of uh, uh, acid peptic disease in the stomach, I put them all on 81 milligrams of aspirin every 12 hours for three months. If they tell me they've had trouble with upset stomachs with aspirin or they've had an upper GI bleed or something, I would switch to a you know, some other anticoagulant. But I I tend to take some precautions with people because if you put an interposition graft in, particularly PTFE, as you know, those grafts never get intimized again. They have the pseudo-enema only, and they have a rough suture line, even if you use 6-O-polypropylene, which, on which platelets can deposit. So it seems to me if aspirin can be used for patients with saphenous vein grafts in the heart, then I didn't, I've never seen any reason not to use it in people with lower extremity grafts for three months. Okay. How do you follow these patients post-op when they come, they come back to your clinic? Do you see them? Do you get a – how often do you see them? Do you get a duplex? Do you just do a physical exam, a CTA at intervals? Does the location matter? What's your – perspective on that it's pretty much the same as in the hospital i certainly check the pulses and i think they should come back to clinic at least once in the first month and then again at three months if the pulses are good at that time i can tell them they can stop their anticoagulant or their antiplatelet agent but they should maintain you know the walking program and no smoking i don't do monitoring the way we do with fempop bypasses and all because Again, most of these are short grafts, 
and I just don't think it's worth the expense and young patients <clears throat> to keep bringing them back for duplex. If they start having claudication or an acute limb ischemia, they'll come back. Fair enough. Well, you have breezed through these questions that I thought I was going to stump you on, and as per usual, I can't stump you on anything. So we're going to move into the section we now call our random questions. Some of these are goofy. Some of these are designed to help us get to know you as a person and at the latter stage to help you impart some wisdom to those who are listening. So my first question for you is, um, it's often said there are two types of people in this world. What are the two types of people? Uh, Leaders and followers. Okay, very, very, uh, very good answer, I suppose. Um, second question: uh, If I were to start a second career as a powerboat competitive racer, what advice would you give to me? Uh, <laughs> very good question. Very, very few people know that you have that background and that passion. I've I've been to your home and seen some of your pictures from your competitive days, and certainly would have never dreamed that the guy who's the editor of our industry textbook had that kind of uh, very fun hobby so what would you tell me if I wanted to get into it the most important thing in, in small boat stock outboard racing is to have a great mechanic for your engine because with stock outboard racing the boats and engines sort of weigh the same the engine size is the same and you need some real refinements and in, in the workings of the engine and then frankly it's actually like everything else in life you take the boat out over and over and over again and see what kind of speed you can attain with different propeller sizes different shifts of weight in the boat it's common sense what what about the driving aspect what what tips would you give me as a rookie driver getting behind the wheel for the first time Try not to get right behind the boat in front of you because one, you can't see, and two, you get saturated. Oh man, I gotta see. We gotta. You gotta take me to one of these competitions. I'm so intrigued at the moment. Um, I may fall in love with it. Uh, <laughs> next question. Uh, getting a little deeper here. Here, what do you take for granted? When you get to be my age, Joe, basically nothing. <laughs> I, nothing. I take nothing for granted. I'm happy to be around. Happy to have my health, etc. I, I don't. I don't. Th- I don't want any of the listeners thinking that you're some decrepit old man. I've seen you moving around just fine, uh, and you're still uh, contributing actively to everything we do. We couldn't get done what we need to do at Shop Trauma without you. Uh, my final question: um, We live in an era where a lot of trauma surgeons and providers are pursuing advanced degrees, M- MPH, MBA, uh, a variety of different things that still fall within the healthcare field, but they utilize those degrees to further their career. What do you think the role is for that kind of advanced? Education? education outside the classical medical tracks the first thing i'll say is do it when you're young before you have a lot of administrative or clinical responsibilities and secondly you should do it if you sit down and project ahead like where do i want to be in five years meaning do i want to be a great clinical or laboratory researcher get an mph do i want to run a hospital get an MBA? Do I run and want to run a group of surgeons, get a master's in psychology? I mean, you basically need to decide if you want to take the time out, even if it's an executive program where you're still able to work, about whether it's going to help you or not. I mean, my wife has an MBA. It's been very helpful to her, but it took you know 18 months of working around the clock clinically, as well as taking all her classes. So, 
my, my advice to assistant professors is always the same. Where do you want to go in a couple of years? What do you want to be? You want to be a chair? You want to be a Nobel Prize researcher? You want to get out of trauma because it's too hard? Decide if the, where you want to go and then decide if that degree will help you get there. Fantastic. As always, sir, you are a, uh, a fountain of knowledge, and, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to all of us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Okay, thanks again, Dr. Feliciano. Bye. This has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to check out all the rest of our content. 